Are student loans now dischargeable in bankruptcy? A recent case from the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit opens that door. So what does that mean? I'm not sure, but worry not. Jason Johnson from the law firm of Retzel and Andrus joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in and spending part of your day with us. Today, we're talking about this recent appeals court decision that, as I said in the opener there, opens the door for student loan forgiveness in bankruptcy. Now, historically, that was not an option unless you could show undue hardship as the debtor. So where does that leave us today? What's changed? We're going to find out very soon. But first, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. How true, how true. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's known as spelled N-O-T-A. And remember, terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's get started. Say hello to our guest, Jason Johnson from the law firm of Retzel and Andrus. Welcome to the show, sir. Sure, thanks. Thank you for coming on. You know, recently we just had a couple of your colleagues, Donna Harrell and Jake Nicholson, come on. They uh, did an episode with me called Lego My Crypto. And of course, that was about the the Kraken cryptocurrency exchange and how the IRS got access to their uh, user records. And then we talked about the Fourth Amendment, things like that. But a wonderful show. I'll put it in the show notes. More importantly for today, I came across your article in the National Law Review. It was titled Huge Win for Private Student Loan Borrowers. Of course, very excited as a, uh, as a uh, student loan holder myself. You know, I've got lots of debt still. I was very interested in your article. And the more I read, the more questions I had. So let's start at the beginning like we do in law school, Jason. Let's start with the facts of the case. I think this case is, I think it's pronounced Homadin or Homadin versus Navient. It started as a bankruptcy court case and eventually worked its way up to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. So can you just give us the background case so me and the listeners have a little context? Sure. And I'm, I'm going to go with uh, your pronunciation of Homadin. Uh, so Halal Homaden was a student who received, in addition to some student loans that went directly to the school, he received some direct-to-consumer private loans to ascend a school called Emerson College. He went to that college and graduated in 2007, and in late 2008, the following year, he filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. So Chapter 7 is the kind of individual liquidation-type bankruptcy case. About five months later, he received his discharge in the bankruptcy case, but the discharge order was silent on whether the private loans were discharged. His bankruptcy case was closed in early 2010. Navient, the student loan lender, then pursued payment on the private student loans. Because they were so persistent, Mr. Homaden assumed that they hadn't been discharged, and he actually ended up paying off the loans. About seven years after the bankruptcy case was closed, Mr. Humaden reopened his bankruptcy case, seeking a declaration that his loans were discharged in the 2009 order, and that Navient violated something called the discharge injunction with their attempts to collect those discharged loans. Okay. Now, a lot of us out there, you know, when they think about the term bankruptcy, unless you're a lawyer, you know, they're thinking this is a step financial condition or some type of uh, status. So like you say, someone is morally bankrupt or someone is financially bankrupt. It's more towards a condition, but bankruptcy means something legally and it does something. There's a policy behind it. So tell us about that policy. What is it designed to do for the person seeking it? Sure. So the biggest thing and the huge policy underlying the bankruptcy code is this concept of a fresh start. 
The enactment of the bankruptcy laws in the United States was an effort to prevent people who were suffering under the weight of crushing debt to prevent them from suffering under that for the rest of their life. It gives them an opportunity to receive something called the discharge, and we'll talk about that in a second. But there's this phrase you see in a lot of cases, especially in non-dischargeability actions, and it's that the principal purpose of the bankruptcy code is to, quote, aid the honest but unfortunate debtor in obtaining a fresh start. So the concept of the fresh start is sort of paramount in bankruptcy world. But the ultimate goal in any individual case, whether it be Chapter 713 or Chapter 11, is to receive a discharge. Now, that discharge is typically a one-sheet, sometimes one-sentence order, and it means that the debtor is no longer personally liable for the debts that are discharged, and creditors of those discharged debts are enjoined or prevented from attempting to collect those debts. Now, Jason, uh, part of our discussion today is going to be the distinction between federal loans and private loans. This case fell under the private loan. So just real briefly, can you describe the difference between federal and private loans? They have different terms of service, which means the contract is different for the borrower, depending on which type of loan, federal or private, that they have. And also, depending on the underlying debt, you know, whether you have a federal loan or private loan, it can apply to different types of student loan debt underlying. So can you just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, at the most basic level, a federal loan is a loan made by the federal government, either made, funded, or backed by the federal government. And private loans are loans that are made by lenders such as commercial banks, credit unions, state agencies, or schools. Federal student loans have terms that are set by law and include fixed interest rates and income-driven repayment plans that are not usually offered by private student loan lenders. Private loans have terms and interest rates that are set by the particular lender, and they're usually more expensive than federal student loans. They, you know, they're typically used for the same types of purposes, but a lot of times, you know, private student loans are direct to consumer, meaning they, you know, the, the uh, student gets a check from the bank and then is supposed to use it to, you know, pay for their tuition books, housing, things like that. Yeah, that, 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 I think that, that, that aligns with my experience as well. You know, if you had sort of a uh, living living expense part of that, that would go kind of into your private student loans as opposed to your tuition, was, which was more centered towards your federal loans, correct? Yes. Okay, perfect, perfect. So now just the status quo before this case came down was that, generally speaking, you could not seek uh, discharge for your uh, private student loans in bankruptcy. And so that meant basically your debt was not forgiven unless unless you could show undue hardship. Now, that was a really hard burden to meet. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. And I would say that, you know, the idea that you can't seek a discharge is a bit of a misnomer. It's just that obtaining a discharge of student loan debt was almost insurmountable, an insurmountable obstacle for most debtors. So most people didn't bother trying to do it. And the ones that did almost always got, you know, knocked away by the bankruptcy court and said, you haven't proven undue hardship. But there's this concept in bankruptcy law and about the dischargeability of certain kinds of debts. And there's a section of the bankruptcy code, 523, that says that a discharge, you know, under these other sections of the bankruptcy code under which you may be filing, does not discharge an individual debtor from any debt. And then it lists all these different kinds of debts. And under subparagraph eight of that, uh, it talks about student loans. There are three different categories. Well, it says, unless accepting such debt from discharge under this paragraph would impose an undue hardship on the debtor and the debtor's dependents. And then it lists three different types of loans. The first category is really for federal student loans. 
The second category is for an obligation to repay funds received as an educational benefit, scholarship, or stipend, and that's the one that really comes into play in this case, or in subparagraph B, any other educational loans that's a qualified education loan as def defined in this, sub in this section of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, if your loan falls under 523A8, you have to show that not discharging the debt would impose an undue hardship on you. If your loan does not fall under this, then the undue hardship test never comes into play and the loan is essentially treated like any other unsecured debt and would be generally dischargeable. The problem with, un with proving undue hardship has been the standard that has developed in the case law and the prevailing test throughout the country actually came from this same second circuit and it was called the, the Brunner test. And under Brunner, a bankruptcy court looks to three factors to determine if undue hardship exists. Number one, based on your financial condition, you cannot maintain a minimal standard of living for yourself and dependents if you're forced to repay the loans. Second, your current financial situation is likely to continue for most of the repayment period of the loan. And then third, you have to show that you've made a good faith effort to repay the loans. The biggest hurdle for, I think, most debtors is this second one, that your current financial situation is likely to continue for most of the repayment period. And a lot of that stems from this idea of, can you go out and get a better job? What are you doing right now? What are you doing with your degree? Are you not using your degree? And could you be using your degree? You could be making more money and paying off these loans. It just creates this sort of insurmountable standard for the debtors to show that it would be an undue hardship on them if forced to repay the loan. All right. Now, now that you've built out that baseline of undue hardship, let's talk about that section 523. And now the court spent a lot of time there uh, kind of playing a semantics game and trying to define this term educational benefit. This was very important. So tell us why that was so pivotal in the decision that the court ultimately ended up making. Well, so in the Homaden case, the debtor sought a declaration that these private direct-to-consumer loans were not loans that fell under 523A8 at all and were therefore discharged under the 2009 discharge order. In other words, we don't even have to get into undue hardship and so this isn't really an undue hardship case. This is a case about whether these types of private loans fall under 523A8 at all, such that you ever need to even get into the undue hardship analysis. Navient argued that these loans were non-dischargeable, absent of showing them undue hardship by Mr. Humaden, as, quote, obligations to repay funds received as an educational benefit under this subparagraph, really sub-subparagraph, 523A8, big A, Romanet 2. And so the Second Circuit ruled that the private loans at issue in this case did not fall under that paragraph. Its rationale was really based on the statutory text. And there are really four reasons that it gave. First is the plain meaning. The court agreed with another court's comment that no normal speaker of English would say that student loans are obligations to repay funds received as an educational benefit. It just doesn't make sense. You'd call it a loan. In the, in the statute, if you intended to talk about loans, you wouldn't call them obliga obligations to repay funds received as an educational benefit, you would say loan. And it further held that if Congress intended to cover all private student loans, it would, it would not have done so in such stilted terms was the phrase it used. This was a pretty damning comment by the court, I think, you know, in that they quoted this language from this other court, and then they referred to if Congress had intended to cover it, cover private student loans with this language, it would have amounted to stilted terms. That was pretty damaging, I think, damning language against Navient's argument. Navient wanted to read, the second 
theory was that Navient, Navient wanted to read the word loan into this subparagraph, but Congress didn't use the word loan in that paragraph, that subparagraph at all. But they did use the word loan in the subparagraph immediately preceding it and immediately following those that subsection. And it used a rule of construction that said that if Congress used that word in the two subparagraphs immediately preceding and, and uh, following it, then its omission of the word in this particular subparagraph was both intentional and purposeful. And so you can't read the word loan into that language. There's also another uh, canon that the court used called the canon against surplusage. And it says that, you know, interpretation of a statute should be to effectuate its provisions and so that no part of the statute would be inoperative or superfluous, meaning not necessary, uh, including the surplusage that Navient proposed, meaning reading the word loan into the subparagraph, would essentially have the effect of pulling all student loans under this section 523A8A2, which essentially would render the other subsections of 523A8 superfluous, meaning Congress set out these specific examples of loans under these three different subparagraphs. And if you were to use Navient's argument, then all student loans would be pulled into this one subparagraph, rendering the language of the other two subparagraphs completely superfluous. The Second Circuit then went through a history of the evolution of Section 523A8 to confirm that that subsection is not intended to be a catch-all for educational loans. And finally, the Second Circuit found that Navient's proposed interpretation violated a canon called nociter associus, which stands for the proposition that a word is given more precise content by the neighboring words with which it's associated. In this instance, the ambiguous term educational benefit uh, the Second Circuit must be read such that its scope aligns with that of its listed companions, scholarship and stipend. So the language of this subparagraph, uh, and I'll read it back to you again, says that it's an obligation to repay funds received as an educational benefit, scholarship or stipend. Navient wanted the term loan used there as educational benefit. And the Second Circuit said that, no, you have to read this in context with the other two words right next to it, scholarship or stipend. And scholarships and stipends describe conditional grant payments. So educational benefit must be defined no more broadly than its statutory neighbors. So the Second Circuit held that this term referred to conditional grant payments similar to scholarships and stipends. And it went on to give a couple of examples of the type of educational benefits that would fall under this provision. One would be tuition paid by the ROTC, and two would be tuition paid by the National Service Health Corps or National Service Health Service Corps. And those tuitions, if paid by those entities, uh, they don't have to be repaid by the student so long as the student you know, commits to a certain number of years of service to those entities after they graduate. Now, if they don't fulfill those service requirements to those entities, they have to repay that tuition to the entities. And so those types of educational benefits that are received by the debtor would fall under that Section 523A8A2 um, language as educational benefits that that subsection is intended to cover.
Thank you, Jason, for that. You know, and listeners out there, th- this is uh, what 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 Jason was highlighting. There was this process that the court went through called the canons of construction, and the courts will do this when terms of of a particular contract or a law are a little ambiguous towards the application that they're being called upon in court to do. And so they call upon traditions to try to provide uh, basically a uniform problem solving aspect to come up with a uniform ap- applicability of the law. And so. Anyway, Jason, thank you for running us through that. It gets very complex. This is one of the things that causes us to it tear our, our hair out in law school. But uh, anyway, it, it, to sum it all up, last question for you. You know, at the end of the day, I did not see a judgment for the plaintiff regarding his bankruptcy. You know, this is a federal law. This is in a federal court. And so, what does this mean for the plaintiff? What does this mean for other students out there that are carrying private student loan debt everywhere? Well, I think the reason you haven't seen a judgment yet is because of some procedural issues. So the way this went up to the Second Circuit was that the bankruptcy court heard a motion by Navient to dismiss Homaden's adversary complaint. The adversary proceeding is still pending in the bankruptcy court, so no judgment has yet been entered in Mr. Homaden's favor. But it's coming. I mean, I suspect that uh, Homaden's counsel is awaiting a ruling on, and we didn't talk about this, but this was filed as a putative class action on behalf of all similarly situated private student loan recipients. And while the Mr. Homaden has moved the court to enter an order certifying the class, the, the court hasn't yet done that, the bankruptcy court. And so I suspect they're awaiting a ruling on certification of the class before moving the bankruptcy court to enter summary judgment based on the court's analysis and the order denying the motion to dismiss and the Second Circuit's affirmation of that analysis. But this case is not going to apply. Let's talk about who it's not going to apply to. It's not going to apply to anybody holding federal student loan debt. That remains non-dischargeable, absent a showing of undue hardship. Where this case really benefits somebody is if they're holding private student loans that don't fall under that sort of narrow third category And so if you have a private loan that doesn't fall under that, then you don't fall under 523A8 at all, and you don't have to prove undue hardship. Now, if you still have the the federal student loans, then, and and that's a lot of people, uh, absent a substantial revision to Section 523A8, proving undue hardship is going to remain a substantial hurdle for debtors trying to shed that that debt. This issue is being discussed. It's all over the media, but in fact, the full Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing yesterday titled Student Loan Bankruptcy Reform. So, you know, there's hope on the horizon, but legislative action has remained elusive on the overall topic. This case does apply to all private loans that do not fit into that narrow category covered by 523A8B, which is that qualified education loan language that we talked about under the Internal Revenue Code. And as noted by the Second Circuit, that covers, for a loan to be qualified under uh, 523A8B, the student must attend an eligible educational institution and the loan must fund only qualified higher education expenses. So where this typically comes into play is where the, the private student loan lender actually pays the money directly to the school for the tuition payments or something like that. Where you have the direct to consumer loans like happened here, I think those are all going to fall under the analysis of the Second Circuit case, and they're all going to be dischargeable. Now, while this will not help debtors erase federal student loans, this case is going to be a boon 
for debtors with private student loans filing for bankruptcy within the jurisdictions covered by the Second Circuit. This is not a Supreme Court of the United States case. It is controlling authority only in the bankruptcy courts that are in the Second Circuit. And those, and all bankruptcy is federal. So, you know, if you're filing in bankruptcy in any one of these three states, New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, then this case is going to be controlling authority in your bankruptcy. And if you have these private student loans, you absolutely will be able to discharge them in your bankruptcy cases in New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, absent, you know, some sort of reversal of this decision by the Supreme Court or an in-bank decision of the Second Circuit. It's going to be interesting to see how many other circuits follow the Second Circuit's rationale and whether this decision gives bankruptcy judges throughout the country, many of whom have commented in written opinions, in <laughs> countless written opinions, on the harshness of the undue hardship tests, whether it's going to give them persuasive authority on which to base decisions discharging these private student loans. I think that's that's likely to happen in a number of jurisdictions. So I think, you know, debtors who have this kind of private student loan debt throughout the country should be making this argument and testing whether the Second Circuit's, you know, rationale is going to hold up in bankruptcy courts throughout the country. And I think you're going to see a lot of debtors' counsel trying this argument. But the overall student loan crisis, and it is a crisis in this country, is is ripe for some overhaul. So we'll see what happens. But this is a this is a big case for people who have private student loans. A lot of really great information out there for student loan holders. Well, Jason, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and being part of our show. Happy to join you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a positive review in your favorite podcasting app. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeart, Stitcher. We're everywhere. So remember, share with the friend. Sharing is caring. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. And that's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew. They get 10 out of 5 stars in my book. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.